For the past several months, we've been working our way through Mark's Gospel. And uh, we're continuing to work through Mark's Gospel uh, today. And we're, we're going to land on chapter 5 today. But before we, we read chapter 5, I want us to just remember from what we've read and from what we've heard previously. Because the account that we're going to read this morning doesn't actually start in chapter 5, it starts at the end of chapter 4. You know, when Jesus was teaching a crowd on the shores of Capernaum, on the northwest side of the lake, Jesus tends to do this quite a lot. It seems like when everything's going good and so he's getting a, getting a buzz from the crowd and thinking, yeah, we're, we're going somewhere, he says, right, it's time to move on now. <laughs> he moves, he, he goes, but he's got a very deliberate purpose, and that is to go to the other side of the lake. Which is quite interesting because Jesus has said before that he's come for the lost sheep of Israel. And so he's got a large territory already. Largely he's operating on the west side of the lake. But on the other side of the lake, it's largely Gentile territory. But yet he feels a, sense, a call that he's got to go here. He's got to go to the other side of the lake. And in, the, in, in chapter 5, we, it's... it's it, it's described as the, the, the area of the, the Gerasenes or the, the Gadarenes. Today it would probably, most scholars think, is probably a little place called Kersey, which that picture there is a photograph from it. And it's part of the National Park on the, the east side of the lake, on the northeast side of the Lake Sea of Galilee. Anyway, with that, let's turn our attention to chapter 5. Um, I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 20. If you'd like a Bible and you haven't brought one this morning, this is a bit um, echoey. could turn it down a little bit. Just put your hand up and Rob will bring you a Bible. If you don't have one at home, feel free to hold on to it. Take it home as a gift. It's also going to come up on screen as well. If you do have one of these Bibles, uh, you'll find it on page 1006. So reading from chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 20. And it reads this. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. 
He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home, tell your own people, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Amen. So as I said, though we picked up the story in starting in verse 1 in chapter 5, it, really the story has already begun uh, at the end of chapter 4, when Jesus suddenly knows that he has to leave this side of the lake and he needs to be on the other side of the lake. Did he know what he was going towards? Possibly. Jesus didn't know everything in his human frame. He only knew what the Father was telling him and what the Spirit was revealing to him. But he knew he had to be there, and he had to be there for a reason. You know, the funny thing is that what we'd heard last week when Jesus was asleep in the boat, and that unexpected storm suddenly rose up. I like to think there's a, there's almost perhaps a wonder if there was a supernatural element to it. Because Jesus is, where Jesus is going, he's going into the heart of enemy territory. And I know that the, the evil one is opposed to what Jesus is all about. And it kind of reminds me of a, a, a story, an incident that's uh, attributed to the late great, um, oh, what was his name? <laughs> I've got it written down as well. Oh, Smith Wigglesworth. You know, it was a story, Smith Wigglesworth, that's it. He was a late great, uh, all great Pentecostal um, minister, had a fantastic ministry of healing. But as a story, is one night when he was asleep, uh, he was suddenly he was disturbed in, uh, by this demonic figure that uh, appeared at the foot of his bed, and supposedly it was Satan himself. And as he turned and he woke and he saw who it was, he went, "Oh, it's you." He went, turned over and went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> in a similar way, I think Jesus would have been quite content to have continued sleeping through the boat journey. It was only because the disciples woke him up and said, oh, "Help us." Jesus said, hush, be quiet, be still. I don't know if he went back to sleep. But you know, the, 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 the sentiment is still the same. You know, that Jesus' authority is absolute. Amen. And regardless of whatever the adversary is, whether it's a storm, an external storm in the sea, or rather it's an internal one that we're more often more familiar with, Jesus' authority is absolute. And we have nothing to fear in his presence. So with that, we're going to turn our mind to the passage that we've just read. As I said, the geography of this region that we have, the brief um, description that we have, we think it's probably uh, this place in Cursey is where they probably alighted, where they arrived by boat. 
But I have this question, and it's the same question that disciples had around the boat as we approach this passage. And I want to start, and I want to get your mind thinking, and to ask yourself, who is this man Jesus? You know, I'm sure that the question was still ringing in the minds of the disciples as they're making their final, as they're approaching the shore on the east side of the lake, saying, who is this guy? We thought we had him all figured out. But there's something else here that an unparalleled degree of authority. And they find themselves questioning it, saying, we've never seen anything like this. He tells the wind and the waves to be still, and they're still... I don't know how close they were on the boat to Jesus before, but I can imagine them all sitting up the other side. <laughs> the funny thing is, ironically, the only person or thing who's any comprehension to this answer is actually the, the demonic horses on the other side of the lake. Because when Jesus arrives and he runs down to meet him, his first thing that he says is, Jesus, son of the most high God. It's funny, everybody's asking this question, but it seems to be it's the enemy who knows who he is. And that's perhaps the reason why they're so terrified. This isn't just a confession that uh, of he's a Messiah. This is a confession of Jesus' deity, of his uniqueness, his oneness with God. And they hate him, and they fear him because of it. And they have good cause to fear him. Particularly when you consider what Paul writes and what Paul says about Jesus in the letter to the Colossians. It says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's some description, isn't it? That is a description and a half. It's such a weighty description. But it's there to expand our appreciation of who he is. And to give a sense of the absolute authority that Jesus wields. It's been veiled for the most part. But it's there nonetheless. And it's most often in these occasions when Jesus, uh, through the, the ministry of when he's, he's healing people, when he's rescuing people from the demonic, that's when we see it. That's when he, he, he uses his divine authority. And it's to set, always to set people free. Yeah. Do you get that? It's, it's always to set people free. It's never to oppress, but it's to set people free. You notice that in the Gospels, Jesus never exercises authority in a way that seeks to um, cause people to act contrary to their nature or cause someone to do anything against their will. It's not like, a, you know, like in the old Star Wars film, uh, Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi with the droids. I'll try to do one. Uh, you know, it says... Is that not the droids you're looking for? What are you looking for? I don't know what I'm going to say. Oh, you're just I'll do it with Simon. He knows what I'm going for. These are not the droids you're looking for. These are not the droids you're looking for. Uh, <laughs> Jesus never did that. <laughs> he never operates like that. 
You know, some of you may be familiar with the stories of uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, if you've not read the books, you probably have seen the films. You know, and G.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, he was a man of faith. You know, and in the Lord of the Rings, the Gandalf character is really like a, a type of Christ figure in the stories. You know, he's the, the, the wise old sage, but he has a, a hidden power. He is uh, from the Vanya, whatever you call them, these divine beings. But yet he comes, and again, similar to Jesus, his power is veiled. He comes as a cracky old man <laughs> with a walking stick. But he doesn't use his power very often. He doesn't uh, use his authority, the power that he wields to manipulate or uh, coerce people to do what he wants them to do. Rather, it's through an appeal to wisdom and truth and fellowship that he is able to join all these different races and the forces of men and hobbits and elves and whatever to rally together and together they overcome the evil that's soaring in the story. And I think G.R. Tolkien recognized this because I think it's very similar to what Jesus does. He never uses his, uh, his authority, his power that often, but when he does use it, he only uses it in a way that you could say is divine or magical, is when he com comes against the direct demonic or evil forces of Sauron himself. He never uses it to oppress or rule people. In fact, it's an invitation to follow and come with me. We can do this together. And that's what Jesus does. But we still need to come to him, though. We need to ask him. And that causes me to question, who was it that instigated the, the race towards Jesus at the shore? Because we know this man has got a fractured personality. He's completely consumed by darkness. We might think it was the demonic horde, and, and in some sense it perhaps it was, but I like to think that somewhere in that suffocating presence of evil, the genuine personality of that man, he saw something. He saw something when this Jesus, who had never met, alighted on the shore. You know, when you've lived in darkness for so long, when light appears, your appreciation is so much more, isn't it? You run towards it. When he saw Jesus, did something in him say, Here, here's rescue. Here's help. Here's somebody that can save me. Here's salvation. And whether it was just for a brief moment, then that, I don't know, in the, in the clarity of the moment, he could say, I'm, I'm running towards that man. Because I think, I don't know how, but I think he can help me. And maybe he was gone again in a blink. And as we know, it was the demonic that rose to the surface again. And those were the ones who were first to speak. You know, if Jesus and the good news of his, his ministry, his, his mission, could be likened to a diamond... Its sparkle and its radiance is made all the more brilliant when you see it against a black cloth, isn't it? But similarly, the blackness of the cloth is more evident when you see it against the radiance of the diamond as well. In the presence of Jesus, 
in the presence of good. Evil is exposed for the wretched thing that it is. Here is the man of God. Here is the man of love who has made it a matter of utmost importance to travel to the other side of this sea, to the other side of this lake, to rescue a Gentile of all people. A Gentile. I mean, not mean much to us. But there would have been a lot of us saying, Jesus, why are you even considering going to the other side of the lake? There's more than enough people on this side of the lake who need you. Don't bother with them. <laughs> there would have been lots of people who felt like that. There may well some of the disciples might have felt like that. They might have felt uncomfortable. I don't, I don't want to be here. I don't want to come this side of the lake. Let's stay this side. And we get that every walk of life. You can get that in the church. We're all right, Jack. Don't worry about them out there. Let's just keep to ourselves. But the funny thing is, God has never been like that. But it's always surprising to his people when God operates in that way. Remember, we spoke about Jonah earlier. Jonah was completely disgusted at the idea of going to the Ninevites. Why did he want to go there for? There are enemies. You want to bless them? <laughs> Peter wrestled with the idea of eating with Gentiles. But fortunately, Jesus doesn't have an issue. If we ever glean anything about Jesus, is that he is God incarnate. And he's come that we might know the true character, the true likeness, the true nature of God in person. He's trustworthy. He is able and he's come to redeem us. To rescue us from the evil one. Just as John records in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the evil one. Also in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, it says, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and to destroy I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. You know, I have the vaguest memory, probably one of my earliest memories as a child. Was we used to live in, in Glasgow in a, in a tenement flat in Shettleston. You might laugh, but I mean, there was six of us living in a bed and kitchen. I think stuff <laughs> We were all quite small, though. Well, the kids were anyway. But the, the, a memory I have is the sensation of being woken up in the middle of the night and being bundled up, I think it was my dad, and going at the door and racing down the stairs. And I was thinking, you're kind of half awake, half asleep kind of thing. And then we alighted into the street, and suddenly I see all my neighbours all standing there as well, some of them in pyjamas, some of them <laughs> in their pants. <laughs> Always wear pyjamas, folks. Jay, <laughs> 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 don't talk about my nightdress. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I was like, what, 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 what's going on? And unbeknown to me, as I looked up the height of the building, I could see that one of the top flats was ablaze. It was on fire. Fortunately, as I say, the fire services arrived and rescued everybody, but in a sense, until we recognize our need for a savior, until we commit our lives to Jesus, 
We're all trapped and asleep in a blazing building. That sounds a bit overly dramatic, doesn't it? <coughs> it might sound that. But I want to ask, what, whose legion are you in? You know, as we read this description of the demonized man, I think most of us in first reading would find it quite difficult to say, oh, I relate to that. <laughs> I don't suppose many of you have a history of stripping off and running around graveyards and cutting yourself with stones. <laughs> but there's an unfortunate truth here that to all of us, to varying degrees, have lived under the rule and the influence of Satan more than we care to admit. You know, that verse that I quoted from First John, the verse in full reads, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Elsewhere, John so wrote, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We don't tend to quote verses like that very much these days. And to agree, you can understand why. <laughs> we won't appear as being judgmental or exercising some kind of moral superiority over people, do we? But we should never read it or receive it in that sense. In truth, it's actually a diagnosis of every person who has lived, living, or will live. Because at some point in our life, we've all been in the thrall of evil. And in our own strength, we've been unable to resist it. Adam and Eve, our parents, if you like, they failed. Their immediate son, Cain, he failed. And it's a, lovely, it's a strange description. I just want to read it. This is what happened to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What followed then, it says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And so the story continues throughout the whole of Scripture. You have testimony after testimony after testimony of failure in the face of sin and evil. The greatest king in Israel, David, failed, didn't he? He committed an act of adultery and then tried to cover up by engineering the death of the husband Uriah. Peter failed when he said, Oh, Jesus, I'll stand with you. You know, I didn't know what anybody else says. I'm going to be there for you. But he failed, didn't he? He denied him three times before the cock crowed. And so from beginning to the end of Scripture, we see it again, and it evidences, it brings up the evidence time and time again. In ourselves, we have an inability to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves from the stranglehold that evil has on our lives. And the damning pronouncement is made in Romans chapter 3, verse, sorry, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, these isolated incidences that we read in Mark and John and, and Luke and Matthew and throughout the whole the book of Acts, these, these acts of isolated uh, acts of 
saving grace, of healing somebody, of delivering somebody, of the, the miracles. You know, it was John who really defined them as signs. They're signs. They're all pointing towards something greater that's coming, that Jesus is going to act decisively at the cross when he's going to pull off the greatest deliverance the world has ever seen. He's going to free the human race if they're up for it. <laughs> we don't know how this man came to be polluted by such a, an extreme form of demonic possession. And it is extreme. You know, we've seen this before. I remember in, the, in, in chapter 1 where he delivered the man who had a demon in the synagogue of all places. How did this man become into such a wretched state? We, we don't really know. And we can speculate forever. Certainly he came from, as I say, a Gentile culture. The worship of false gods. Or as Paul rightly defines them. As demons. And any missionary could probably tell you story upon story upon story of the spiritual opposition that they face when they've come into a foreign culture that's, you know, in the thick of idolatry or shamanism or witchcraft or anything like that. Spiritual forces are still at work today as much as they were 2,000 years ago. You know, even our... Western culture, which is largely founded on Greek culture. And for all its splendor and accolades and haughty ideals, it has its weaknesses. It still has its weaknesses today. You know, it's, you could say it's the glorification of mankind, the pursuit of the body and the mind. And the excesses of these ideals always find new expressions. They're things that we struggle with today. Substance abuse. Sexual, perversions, pornography, adultery, you name it, we've got it all. The demonic evil is just as active today as it was then. And as I think it's First Peter writes, you know, Satan is like a roaring lion. He prowls around looking for someone to devour. And as a lion, as any other predator, their first choice, if you've watched like wildlife shows, their first choice is always to go for the weakest and the wounded first, isn't it? And you know, he knows our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. <coughs> the wounds that we nurse, or sometimes the wounds that we hold on to and don't treat, he sees them. And he will take advantage of them. You know, it may not be that you, you've got a, a house full of idols. <laughs> you may not be worshipping false gods. But it might just as easily be gossip, envy, unforgiveness, malice, greed, resentment. You know, they'll do just as well. And he will seize upon them. You know, he's like, well, I think he is described as a lord of flies somewhere. And when he sees something rotten, the swarm will descend on it. Demonic can also be likened to an infection on a sore. It aggravates it. If you've got resentment, he will gladly leap on that and he will aggravate it and he will inflame it and make it even worse than it was before. If you're holding on to unforgiveness, he will aggravate that. He will leap upon that 
And he will make it ten times worse than it ever was before. These things aren't so unfamiliar to us then, are they? You know, we might not be running around in the buff. <laughs> we might not be hanging out in graveyards. We may not be demonized in the sense that this poor soul was. But until we are willing to receive the authority of Jesus in our lives, we will be under the authority of someone else. And his intentions for us are never good. They are never good. He has ultimate destruction in mind for us. And I think that's the reason why Jesus deliberately allowed the, the demon horde into the swine, into the pigs. Because some people often struggle with that, saying, oh, Jesus, that seems a bit extreme. What would you do that for? You know, that's some poor soul's out of pocket now. That's an awful lot of pigs to throw in the river, <laughs> isn't it? Because, you know, I've done something else. I'm sure Jesus could have done something else. I mean, the demonic girls were feeling that he was going to throw them into the abyss, which was awaiting them at the end of time. But Jesus made a deliberate point to say, yeah, you can go there. And I think it was very deliberate. And I think it wasn't just to show uh, the actual number. It wasn't like a biopsy. Oh, see, you want to know how, actually, how many demons there are? Well, there's about 2,000 pigs there. So you, you go in there and you actually see how many of you there actually are. It's interesting that it calls itself legion. I mean, it's, it's borrowed from the Roman term, Latin term, to describe a, a Roman legion. And that could number up to 6,000. Given that the, the whole herd of the pigs was uh, possessed, 2,000, well, that's a pretty good number. And it gives you an idea of just how bad the situation was for this man. But Jesus, Jesus didn't do it just to show, well, look at this impressive number of demons I've cast out. He, well, that wasn't the reason for doing it. It's because of what happened to the swine afterwards. What happened to them? They, they went wild and they ran and almost like... We like to call it lemmings. I don't think lemmings really do do this, but you know, they, they run off the edge of a cliff and fall into the sea. But that's what they did. They were destroyed. And I think Jesus did that deliberately to show everyone here, you know, if you want to you live like that, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to face destruction in the end. Nothing good will come of living like this, of entertaining these ideals, of entertaining evil in your life, because ultimately it's going to lead to your destruction. I'm sure after that, that day, people were still talking about it. I'm sure they remembered the man. So, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But they'll remember even more the swine that <laughs> went over the cliff and into the water. And it feeling with a sense of dread. I don't want to be like that. I don't want that to happen to me. I think that was very deliberate of Jesus. You know... Often use this um, quote, and I'll abbreviate it because I'm conscious that I use it far too often. But it's so brilliant, and it's such a perfect insight. And it's by C.S. Lewis. You know, he says that we're far too easily pleased in life. We choose to continue making mud pies in a slum when infinite grace comes to us and invites us to a holiday by the sea. You know, because the tragic thing about this story, the saddest part of the story was the reaction of the people afterwards. 
You know, everybody should have been celebrating, having a party, saying, oh, look, he's, he's healed. Isn't that wonderful? It's great. Oh, brilliant. Let's have a party. <laughs> Where's his family, friends? Come on, let's all celebrate this. But what was their reaction? Like, are you here? Great. What was happened to the... <gasps> oh, could you leave? Could you go? <laughs> look, look. Look what he's done. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, but just go. It's sad, but it seems that the loss of the swine seems more important to them than anything that's benefited this poor man. You know, it's true that Jesus will and does disturb our comfort at times. He will interrupt our routines and the grand plans and the sense of security that we have in material things. You know, the enemy would have us bound to the, the fortunes of 2,000 pigs. Whereas Jesus would rather have us free and live life to the full. You know, it's funny that as a popular thought amongst commentators that, you know, that in the story of the, the prodigal son, and that the far off land that he goes to. Many think it was likened that Jesus actually had in mind the region of the Decapolis. Was where this young son travelled to. Because it was Gentile country, it was Hellenistic culture, it was Greek culture. That he had transitioned from the Jewish traditional way of life. And went to say, well I'm, I'm going to the Amsterdam. <laughs> and having a whale of a time. And that's what the, the Decapolis would have been like. But it was the ruin of them. You know, I, I do like wildlife programs. You know, and it was something I remember seeing years ago. And it's just a perfect illustration of how the devil likes to play us. You know, the, the bushmen of the Kalahari Desert, if they want to catch a baboon or a monkey. What they do is they, they dig a little hole just big enough that a, a monkey can reach its, you know, its, its hand through. And what he does, is he, he drops uh, like peanuts, nuts in the hole because he's doing it fairly close to where the baboons and monkeys are and they're watching him. <laughs> and what he does then, he leaves them and then he goes and hides behind a rock or something like that. And what happens is that the baboons and the monkeys come and they, they, they're nosy, they're, they're curious creatures and they put their hand in and they grab them. And then obviously the bushman runs up because what's happened is the monkey, or the baboon is trapped because it's got a hand so tightly held around about the peanuts that it can't get its hand out. And it doesn't have the sensibility to think, if I let this go, I'll be free. Mm. And that's how he catches us. You know, he, he encourages us to put our confidence, our faith, in the things of this life. You know, for the rest of Mark's gospel, we see the parable of the sower being played out again and again and again and again. So many different responses, so many different reactions to Jesus. But here we see it, the, the, the concerns of this life being choked and the seed never been allowed to germinate or grow. Because we've got our hands stuck in the trap. That's how the devil likes to play us. If I could just get them focused on the things here and now, things of life, your concerns are this, I've got them. I've got them. But one man, at least, has a sense and a sensibility recognized that I've tasted evil. 
I've had a gut full of it. I know what its intention for me was. It was to destroy me, but I know there's somebody here now who has rescued me. And he's bound himself to Jesus so much so he wants to go with them. He says, there's nothing here for me anymore. I'm not interested in Greek culture. I don't care about what this could offer me, what that could offer me. I'm only interested in you. And so desperately wants to go with them. You might think, it was, oh, Jesus, it was a bit hard. Why didn't you just take him with you? Because Jesus had commissioned him. Jesus hadn't abandoned him. Jesus had commissioned him. Just as he's commissioned you. You know, go among your own people. Tell them what the Lord has done. You know, it's funny, Jesus did come by that way again. And I think we read it later on in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7. When Jesus came to the Decapolis and crowds of people followed him. Was it perchance that that fellow might have had a part in that? Because he was faithful to what Jesus said to him. It says he went round the whole Decapolis, ten cities in that whole region, telling again and again, look, listen to my story. I used to be like this, but look at me now. And you know who did that? It was that guy on the other side of the lake. <laughs> he came to me and he rescued me. And he can do it for you as well. Oh, trust him. Trust him. Put your life in his hands. You know, his yoke is easy. He doesn't come to oppress you, to make you act contrary to your will. He wants to rescue you, make you free. Appeal to you through truth and light. Come and follow him instead. Folks, I'm not going to name any one particular thing because, you know, there's a whole raft, more than 2,000 things we might all be struggling with. For some of us, it might be some kind of addiction. It might be some kind of habit. It might be some kind of thing we find ourselves drawn to again and again. You know, it might be, I'm going to say it, gossip, I don't know. I'm just conscious of the things that, yeah, I could identify some of the things that I struggle with. Yeah, I like a bit of gossip then again. What else? You know me better than me. <laughs> Call out! <laughs> Slothfulness. Yeah. You know, we've all got something. The evil, that sin, we'd happily take hold of. And have us stuck in it. Jesus wants us to be free. Let's be free. Ask Jesus, Jesus, will you rescue me? Will you save me from, well, for everybody else, it might seem a little thing, but for me, it is a big thing. And I know that you can deal with it. Let's start.